0: Welcome to Twelve the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on February 22nd, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terrier, Professor of Law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. For over two decades, our School of Law, in conjunction with the IU School of Medicine, has confirmed the McDonnell Merrill Ketchum Memorial Award for Excellence in Law and Medicine. This year's honoree was Dr. Karen DeSalvo, who is currently Professor of Medicine and Population Health at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. She served in the Obama administration as National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and Acting Assistant Secretary for Health, and previously was the Health Commissioner for City of New Orleans. I'm very grateful to Dr. DeSalvo for making her remarks available on Twill. Her talk begins in New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina, explains zip code health, emphasizes the role of social determinants of health, demonstrates how social determinants impact particular health outcomes, presents a systematic model for dealing with social determinants, explains Public Health 3.0, and discusses the gap between health and social care spending. She also discusses the role of technologies such as right share companies disrupting social services and digital assistants such as Amazon Echo acquiring more health information. To complement the audio, the show notes at tool.com contain links to additional resources as well as some of the graphics and sources she relied on.
1: Thank you, Nick. And thank you guys um, for having me here today. It's really an extraordinary honor. And uh, this time that I've spent in the last day uh, with some of the members of the faculty and the students has been a um, really inspiring experience, actually. Uh, the, the work that you're doing here in, in Indiana, I think, is a real model for what the rest of the country needs to do much better, which is not just um, have interprofessional uh, grants or projects, but really uh, a culture that encourages and drives that and thinks about, how at the intersection you all can make a difference, not only in advancing the evidence, but policy and practice in the field. So thank you all. It's really just been my honor to get to be here and and to spend time with the future this morning with the students. So thank you all for getting up and coming in and having breakfast. What I want to talk about today is zip code health, uh, also known as social determinants of health. This idea that health is much more than health care, clearly something that you all uh, understand uh, Well, and if you don't, you're going to by the time I finish. And I want to give you a sense of how active the practice and policy space is in trying to create a framework to build out the evidence and to find ways to create payment models, data models and structural policy models that can support good work that happens on the front line, which is a pretty big shift even in the last 12 months that it's in the consciousness of key policymakers along the journey of my talk. I'm going to share a little bit about what's happening in the field to give you some examples. Uh, And then I want to do a bit of a touchstone about my personal experience with this as a doctor. um, And, and also as uh, somebody who's got some experience in public health, but when I had kind of an epigenetic phenomena um, and that happened in uh, August of 2005 when uh, Hurricane Katrina made landfall on the Gulf Coast of the United States. And what, what happened as a result of that storm to New Orleans was that we had a failure of engineering and our city flooded Uh, 80% of the land mass, which is equivalent to the size of the island of Manhattan, uh, for about 30 days, and we were under um, emergency order for about six months, and in that period of time, uh, as we were putting things back together again, we made a very focused decision that we weren't going to rebuild what we had, we were going to rebuild differently, we were going to re-engineer a system that was really focused on health, since um, we had had the distinction of being last in health and highest in uh, payments for quite some time, and I think for, for many of us who had been trying to do some work around the edges to advance not only the healthcare system to be more equitable, but to think more broadly about health, we saw opportunity in this tragedy to do a real uh, rethink of our system and. As we were sort of thinking about evidence-based models and how to reconstruct healthcare, care, you can imagine that we went to some natural places like digitize the care system. We also wanted to really build a strong foundation of primary care, but the challenge that we were really trying to solve wasn't so much about access to care and about great quality care. It was really more about this problem, uh, which is that we had a 25-year gap in life expectancy based upon your zip code uh, in my community. And if you live just a few miles apart in New Orleans, uh, you were going to die pretty differentially. So if you lived uh, right behind the French Quarter, your, your life expectancy, 55 years, uh, those are the people that when you go visit New Orleans, these are the people that served your food and your drinks and cleaned up your hotel room. For the most part, this is um, low-income workers that live in, in Section 8 housing b- behind the French Quarter versus if you live up by the lakefront and you have an 80-year 80 life, 80 life expectancy because you own the hotels. And to get some change in this, we knew we wouldn't have to just sprinkle some better primary care or any primary care, we're going to have to fundamentally kind of rethink the zip code, the infrastructure, the resources available to people to build out a healthcare system capable of diagnosing and treating, uh, not just disease, but also the social determinants of health. It was not even just an intellectual exercise, and I just want to drive this point home for you all because those of you who work in or with community, those of you who have have roles that bring you into homes, whether you're an EMT or a social worker uh, or you're doing case management, I think you have a sense of how different it is to have a conversation with with somebody when you're in their space and not when they're in your space. Um, The power dynamic shifts, uh, they tend to to share more about the realities of their life when you actually step into their house, uh, when you can open their refrigerator and see that it's either completely empty or just loaded with sugar-sweetened beverages. You get a better sense, not only clinically, but economically of where they're living. And for us at that time in 2005, it wasn't so much that we had to make a special trip to go out to community to, to figure out what the challenges were because 80% of our community had flooded. Uh, my faculty's houses had, had flooded. The, the policemen's houses had flooded everybody. Like everyone was sort of in the same boat. So it wasn't, let's go find out what's happening with the community. We were all part, unfortunately, of a community that was really struggling. Some people able to get up faster because of a lot more resources. Other people, we were worried we're going to really be left behind. But this idea that health was more than healthcare care became baked into our education, into our research, into our practice, into our policy. And frankly, um, if there was a tattoo for social determinants of health, I'd probably have it because it just uh, became embedded in my brain. Every person that I saw, it was no longer enough to say, um, here's your insulin prescription. The first question would be, where are you living? Okay, do you have electricity? And what else do we need to do to help? But the um, sort of interest in for us in New Orleans, the work that we were able to do to build a health care system to really um, have certainly a primary care infrastructure that could begin mostly through a hack job of trying to identify this is uh, but one of probably thousands of models that have happened all across the country where local communities have experimented with ways of trying to address health beyond healthcare and really think about the context and the social needs that somebody has because New Orleans is not alone. Your gap in life expectancy in Indianapolis I think is more like 14 or 15 years uh, based on zip code but all across the country a whole host of folks like Steve Wolf at at Virginia Commonwealth University or Raj Chetty at Stanford have been doing work with big data and sometimes smaller data to map out for us, to visualize for us that where you live really matters and, and it depends how long you will live and how well that you will live. And it can get pretty micro. It's not necessarily even just about county or zip code, but sometimes I think as we know, block to block. And so this idea that our zip code affects our health more, not only than healthcare, but uh, probably our genetic code has become a not just a, a rallying cry in public health anymore. And I think this is one of my first big messages for you all. Things that we've kind of known in public health that we maybe intuited in medicine now are understood in uh, the halls of Washington and in boardrooms. And there's a lot of good in that, but there's um, potentially some things that we might want to get in front of, and that's what I want to share a little bit uh, as we go forward. And some of the reason uh, that this has captured the imagination of the country that there are many social determinants of health that drive health is the opioid epidemic. And though there's been uh, a lot of good ways to shape and think about the data. I, I think this work by Anne Case and Case and Angus Deaton catapulted to the front page of The Wall Street Journal and the New York uh, Times this idea that people are dying in America, who traditionally have been living longer or are actually now living shorter. Um, and the things that are underlying their, their health challenges uh, aren't just the traditional communicable disease or chronic disease, that they're, they're struggling with a broader array of challenges that relate to things like lack of economic opportunity, lack of educational opportunity, hopelessness, social isolation, and they're self-medicating with alcohol and drugs or committing suicide, and that's showing up in life expectancy in the U.S., which for three years, in a row now is declining, not just in middle-class white Americans, but we're seeing this more broadly across all populations. And it should definitely uh, be cause for concern, not because white people are dying. That's absolutely not the message here. It's because what we're seeing is such a complex challenge. It's social causes. It's social determinants of health that is the leading uh, indicator, increasingly, of death in this country. And it's going to take more than any one discipline, sector field to to solve this. It's really going to take all of us uh, finding a way to work together collaboratively. Headlines aside, We had a real watershed moment in this country on November 18th of 2018 when Secretary Alex Azar, the current Secretary of Health and Human Services at HHS, gave a speech called The Root of the Problem America's Social Determinants of Health, which actually was the moment I almost retired um, because I said, Well, if, if, uh," and I happened to be in the room, so it was really an extraordinary moment for me. I got to watch him give the speech in person and felt his sincerity, and I thought, Well, this is a, a really important moment for our country when the person who has um, the most power financially, from a policy standpoint, has a huge bully pulpit, will stand up and say, Health is more than healthcare. My responsibility at HHS is more than driving payment policy. There's an and in the name and it includes human services and so we have to understand how we can drive health uh, across the board. I, I would has anybody read this speech except for the people I sent it to yesterday? <laughs> Anybody had a chance to see it? You should read the speech. It's on their website. Um, You can just search root of the problem, Alex Azar, and it'll take you right to his speech. And the opening lines, I think, give you a sense of how the rest of the speech goes. But he says, the social determinants of health is an abstract term. And somebody that I was talking to this morning, one of the students did this thing that every hospital CEO or board member or policymaker tends to do when they first start talking about the social determinants of health. And they like wave their hand like, this is just this thing that we don't really understand, and it's complicated, and so we're just going to do that, as if healthcare is not complicated enough. But this, I think this first line from the secretary is, is a pretty powerful one, that it's abstract for people, but that now there's a, an appreciation that it affects people's health in a very concrete way. It says, it's a tangible, frightening challenge. How can someone manage diabetes if they're constantly worrying about how they're going to afford their meds each week? How can a mother with an asthmatic son really improve his health if it's their living environment that's driving his condition? Uh, and he goes on, and in the speech talks about some opportunities that they may have to, to make a difference. And this moment, from a policy standpoint, is not the beginning, but rather, uh, I would say, a, an important milestone in what's been some really exciting work happening all across the country in the public and private sector to really change the way we're addressing health care. I talked about what we're doing, what we did in New Orleans. As I said, um, I could give you stories like that from thousands of places across the country, but I think that the general synopsis is that we're learning as a country particularly those who haven't really understood it, the people with all the money, the healthcare system, because make no mistake, they've got the $3.7 trillion, um, and public health has a has 3% of the total amount, and so if, uh, it's not about hitching wagons, it's about finding good partnerships, so I'm excited about the realization, but the, the folks are recognizing that pushing on that 20% that's going to drive health outcomes, um, where we spend most of the money, is only going to get us part of the way there. And all this effort around value-based care and clinical excellence, uh, I think we're we're seeing that in the in the big dot indicators. Life expectancy still going down, even though we're improving the quality of care, and that's been an increasing signal that there's not just work to do in advancing or understanding genetics, think precision medicine, but this big box of the sixty percent that drives the social and environmental and behavior ha- behavioral factors that address health. And so you're seeing. Um, uh, in fact, I was just at the University of Utah um, last week, and the the chancellor there told me that he's thinking about. Re- Restructuring the way they do their science work into these three buckets, he's understood enough about about the importance that at a, at a major university that he wants to reshape, including the, the physical footprint of how people are organized and, and working together to talk to one another. It's affecting architecture, is what I'm trying to say. And and you all, I hope know this. And if you don't, you should you should understand what the social determinants of health are. You should know that healthy people. Uh, current version 2020, which is done on behalf of you with your taxpayer dollars by the HHS define social determinants of health as the conditions in the environment in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect, that age one's getting more important to me all the time, that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. And that will stay relatively similar, we think, in the 2030, which they're working on right now, but they, they give a conceptual model. This is a, a, a cartoon of it that we created at the National Alliance to impact social determinants, but it just, again, gives you the sense of, a, of the pie that that clinical care is just about 20% and we have all these other opportunities to, to really affect health. I want to be really clear with you all. When I talk about the social determinants, I'm using their definition, which includes concepts like the built environment, like environmental exposure, like racism. All of these concepts are embedded in this in the, in this broader definition of the social determinants, plus um, how we behave in the bar environment in which we live or work or learn or play. And the, the thinking about this work, by the way, is now that it's not Just These are concepts, but I'm excited that, importantly, the known literature about the relationship between these domains of social determinants of health and uh, health outcomes is uh, becoming a little bit better known. I wouldn't say we're quite there with policymakers yet, but there's some good movements afoot, um, and I'll, I'll talk about a couple to sort of help crystallize that information. This uh, uh, visual representation is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. is just meant to really shape this idea that there is, first of all, a, a correlation mostly between uh, having a lot of social risk, low income, unhealthy neighborhood, poor housing, and health outcomes, uh, whether that's your quality of life or mortality, but also things like spending on health care, use of health care systems. And so the relationship is that the worse, if you will, your social determinants challenges are the worse your your indicators are with respect to things that some people care about, like spending in healthcare, or your the, the experience that you have with the healthcare system, or your health outcomes. I think what's what's um, exciting in the last few years is that we're building a better body of evidence that goes beyond the correlations and starts to look at interventions. So it's not an, it's not uh, inexorable that you're going to have a worse mortality if you live in a worse zip code. There are actually things that we can do to change that circumstance, and there there many of them are policy level. But the healthcare system and the payers, uh, as well as as the business community and other sectors, are starting to think about you know how can we drive economic stability. To Change people's social determinants so that we can actually then reverse the direction of these arrows uh, at the bottom of these outcome indicators. By the way, how can we also make sure we're measuring the right things, and they're not just purely healthcare-related, but we're really thinking about things like healthy days or quality of life? And there's a lot of activity in these domains. I would I would submit to you that I think most of it right now is in food and transportation. Um, And I I just want to make a comment about building the science in this area. Is I think one of the worries that I would have is we would think that if we solved um, food insecurity, as an example, that we would solve the social determinants of health, and there's a little bit of policy direction like that. This is It's easier to think that way if you're staff on the finance committee, that I just tell me what I need to do to address food insecurity, since that's a really common one, and we'll do that, and then we'll move on to the next big policy challenge. But I think our scientific challenge is to try to find a way to blend these social needs together to create risk scores in the way that we've created cardiovascular risk scores, to say you can't just do the one thing, you need to do all of these things. Uh, and in fact, food insecurity may just be a marker of transportation challenges or social isolation. Uh, there, are, there are other reasons that these, these social determinants run in packs, I think is what I want to say. If you're interested in learning more about uh, the new evidence generation or you want to get involved in that, there's a group at UCSF called SIREN Social Intervention Research and Evaluation Network, UCSFsiren.org, and it is a great place to find a lot of the current literature, and they're also trying to organize a virtual national network to create uh, a place where there's a source of truth that can help advance not just the the field but also policymakers. And the National Academy of Medicine, we have a consensus committee that's going to put a report out in the fall. Looking at the evidence, I tell you right now, it's a lot of gray literature. There's not a lot of peer-reviewed evidence about if you impact a social determinant, what happens to outcomes. I know that sounds really surprising, but there's really not. So we've got to get super busy, otherwise we're going to be making non-evidence-based policy in this country. Uh, and so I hope that, that uh, you all, uh, if you have any interest, whether you're doing practical work or scientific work, will kind of help make this not associations, but actually really outcomes uh, kind of work. But that sort of lack of traditionally strong evidence is not stopping people from getting to work. And uh, I think it's really great, but I think it's also um, a little worrying to me, because it's a dizzying amount of experimentation happening uh, in in health systems, large and small, from the smallest um, community health center in Austin that is uh, addressing food insecurity to big health systems like Kaiser that are building housing. There is a, a really broad array of work happening. What we're trying to hopefully do is get people a little more organized into a shared learning community. But I, I present to you here this conceptual model of sort of five ways that systems are addressing this. This is a, a more of a healthcare view, but I'm gonna segue into a public health view because it's applicable just about um, wherever whatever sector you're working from. Uh, this is the model that we're likely to use in this uh, integrating social care into healthcare report from the National Academy of Medicine. So it's a bit of a preview. Um, and, and really, I think the, the continuum here shows the varying levels of complexity that are required. That really mean you have to have a lot more partnership and interprofessional work together. So the kind of things that are happening in the field, I'll, I'll just give an example in each of these boxes to give you a flavor, and then we can certainly talk more about it. The assessment is really just kind of the diagnosis, and so the, the sort of first thing to know is, is: does this person have a social need or social risk? This is a uh, the, the, mo- the most common way this is happening in the, in the country right now is on an individual level. It's a downstream effort. It's asking somebody who's either in your clinic or in the hospital or who's been in the ER a lot a questionnaire. Are you going to bed hungry? Are you safe at home? Do you have transportation challenges? There's a whole bunch of choices of these questionnaires and then using that data to hopefully get them some help. Um, there are some places that are just kind of using the data to try to get a sense of risk stratification. So who are the high cost, high I need populations more common in some of the health plan worlds but the assessment piece is kind of just step one what begins to happen uh, after that though is accommodation and I gave you all that story in the beginning about the patient uh, that I had who had diabetes and writing insulin for them without knowing that they are homeless or marginally housed uh, I wouldn't be accommodating their social needs so I, if I it's one thing for me to, to, to do perfect care but I have to know what their home situation is and then accommodate my care plan based upon that the insulin's a little bit a little bit difficult but you could imagine a way in which um, you might be able to choose a different medication based upon their context. You don't change anything about it. You just accommodate the care plan and the care model. I think these apply... Um, quite frankly, uh, to any kind of a, a service sector that's trying to help somebody who may have some social need. Assistance is, uh, as it sounds, it's helping somebody get referred in the case of, say, food insecurity to a food bank, which is probably the most common thread um, that's happening across the country. Uh, even uh, in the public health world, we spend a lot of time working to stand up the, the food banks and food infrastructure. There are other ways to get them supported with assistance, like make sure they're enrolled in, in SNAP or food stamps. Or in Meals on Wheels programs, uh, help them by finding out a way to get rideshare or a transportation company. The um, examples of that are a lot of these kind of Medicaid models that have popped up, where they're asking questions of low-income populations on Medicaid. You know, are you having a challenge like transportation? Okay, then we'll make sure, for example, to accommodate that by not having you come back for your lab results. We'll just call you for it. Um, but if we do need you to come back, we're going to provide a way for you to have transportation. And it seems that in all of those those places, there's some accumulating evidence that it makes a difference in terms of people people's health outcomes uh, and potentially in reducing cost where things get kind of stepped up is in the alignment and advocacy. And and the alignment work is where medicine and the the medical field in general kind of flips out. And I I think part of it is because we definitely think that we're the sun and everyone else revolves around us. Where's my medicine people? Y'all know that. And we're we're, we're, we're sort of taught that, right? I think we're screened for it when we come into school. And so the idea that it's not going to be us referring out to someone else, but that we're going to have to figure out what is the food system in my community? What is the transportation system in my community? How do I either set a table or find the right table to go to to make sure that we can do better, not only for the individuals, but very quickly that conversation gets to, oh, there's more than just my attributable population. There's a community. And it's not just that I have to think about this through the lens of healthcare, but there's a whole world out there of public health and the, the governmental infrastructure and the housing sector who's already doing really important work. And I, I this is my favorite point is when and its favorite time is when uh, different sectors learn about the whole other sector and the work they're doing, that they're speaking an entirely different language and working on the same challenges, but they haven't figured out how to align um, and work together. And very often that leads to some really interesting advocacy work to try to make change um, in the community or on, on the front lines. And I'm, I uh, don't want to spend a lot of time about uh, on this today, but I just want to acknowledge that in that world of beginning to align and to build advocacy is where public health uh, in my opinion, really becomes an important part of the conversation. And so the further we can push those in the policy and the healthcare world interested in understanding how to address the social determinants across that continuum to not just asking a person if they're going to bed hungry, but beginning to understand how to actually change the food system so that nobody has to go to bed hungry, not just that one person. This is where um, that that sort of multi-sectoral work gets exciting. And I I um, have done some uh, personal and other work around uh, this, what we call Public Health 3.0, which is an upgrade to public health practice in which you see communities where public health and other sectors work together in a cross-sectoral environment to change systems, like a food system, to identify and close gaps as an example, but then also think about what are the policy and environmental and systems level changes that they need to, to undertake together. And it's got sort of five key core components, but uh, I think all of them are really about leadership and money and data and partnership, uh, and then also accountability to the community. These are honestly basic tenets of public health or any kind of good policy practice. Uh, I don't think that we've re- that we've invented a new wheel here. I think we're just describing what's really good to do in the community. But in the last two years, this has gone from being more of a public health concept to the healthcare sector and the, and the, the civil sector being interested in trying to, again, think about, well, if we've got a problem with health in our community, we can't just turn to health care, maybe not even to public health. We have to have a much broader array of partnerships at the table. And in fact, uh, I told you a little bit about New Orleans earlier. That was absolutely how we, we tackled the challenge there, uh, particularly when I became health commissioner. And uh, all to say that, um, from a health standpoint, cardiovascular disease was a big challenge for our community. I learned uh, probably within 24 hours of being health commissioner from the community that I was an idiot, and that their real problem was public safety uh, and mental health challenges, and that cardiovascular disease and the risk factors were just a symptom of that. They didn't have a safe place to exercise. They couldn't. They, they didn't. You know, uh, they couldn't grow a community garden because there was lead in their soil. They, you know, all sort of on and on and on. And, and um, what they wanted to be was fit. They didn't want to be called obese sort of all these things that that they uh, taught me that then translated into us becoming a culture of health prize winner uh, for the community for our multi-sectoral work. And I I think probably more importantly than anything led to policy change in our community like going smoke-free in New Orleans, which hopefully y'all know that we're smoke-free in New Orleans because now most places are, but back when that happened in, in 2014, people liked to fall over. They couldn't believe a place like New Orleans could really move towards health. And I think it's just an example of how if health department or health care had tried to do any of this alone, we would have missed the community voice, and we would have missed the opportunity to make really systematic change, because from a cardiovascular disease standpoint, smoke-free community is going to protect a lot more people than a couple of health fairs. That's probably the most important thing that I'll say, which is my chance to, 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 to call out uh, in Indianapolis, and to say that there are ways that we're measuring that kind of work across the country. Uh, cityhealth.org is the website. You should uh, check it out, and you should notice that y'all don't have any medals in Indianapolis, uh, and uh, that means that you're not really taking a you're not really in that alignment um, advocacy realm of working together to address uh, the broad determinants of health including the social determinants things like um, economic opportunity by offering paid sick leave or educational opportunity like high quality universal pre-k or housing like affordable housing this is a way that there's a, a, a way to re- a reward mechanism to say communities are working together so it's not just that you have to have a room where you sit, sit around and talk there's actually goals to set. And there's good um, resources to use. Like at the CDC website, High Five is a great resource. And it's H uh, big H, small I, number five, five years to impact a set of resources that can, communities can work together. What I'm saying to you is there are uh, evidence-based practices already that can address the social determinants. And we don't even have to rely on the healthcare system. I think we can get started uh, as we wait for the healthcare system to get smarter um, and, and be ready to share their money. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so ready to pick the pocket of the healthcare system. Can you tell. <laughs> Which brings me to policy, and uh, I, I think that um, I, well, I don't think I know. I can tell you a year ago when we went up on the hill and we're talking to people about social determinants of health. Uh, two years ago, three years ago, uh, health and human services. Even when I was there, nobody really knew what it was. If you talked, in fact, if, if you talked about public health, people thought you were talking about Medicaid. Um, and if you talked about social determinants of health, they thought you were talking about welfare. The world has changed so much. I was uh, I was last on the hill last month, and I actually I'm going to use this word. To Terrified, and um, because because I um, I went in to, to to meet again with some of the the key staff, and and when we and and I they said, well, you know, how's things going, blah blah blah, and they said, and they and they got their pen out, and they said, what would you like us to do? And they were ready to start writing down legislative ideas, which is great, except that there's maybe we have enough bandwidth right now, but they're that excited and interested, and they actually have a lot of the concepts, and it's very true as you saw from Secretary's Azar's speech. This is well beyond what the Centers for Disease Control can and should do to advance the public health and address social determinants, they're really looking at how they use big levers like Medicare and Medicaid, because honestly, um, the money's with the actuaries, literally and figuratively. If we can convince the actuaries at Medicare, if we can convince them that health is more than health care, that it matters, that in some way we're affecting not only the health of individuals, but communities, then we have an opportunity to really make a policy shift in this country and really rethink the way that we're making investments in health. Uh, They're also looking at a lot of ways to remove barriers around data sharing, things like HIPAA and and data privacy, how to be more clear about what is and is not allowed. Stark laws, good and bad and all of that, but I want you to know they're super active and trying to figure out how to push and then how to get out of the way. The state-based activity is incredibly exciting. I would point you to one state in particular, which is North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is, has a, a, a Medicaid waiver approved by the Trump administration, and the people who are running North Carolina's Medicaid program came out of the Obama administration. So I call that out to you to say, this is a bipartisan agreement on how we can use Medicaid dollars to not only improve health, but address the social determinants of health in a really innovative way. For example, they're getting allowed to experiment with using Medicaid dollars to pay rent. Th- this is a hotbed of activity and I think you're going to see more of that kind of work being allowed and uh, even though there's been some idea generation in the field at the state level they're getting a lot more latitude um, by this administration to uh, advance that work and in fact Seema Verma did a blog about um, this work so that you can read a little bit more about her inside thinking I want to talk about a few things that we're not talking about that are policy related around the social determinants of health which I hope we can um, will whet your appetite for some important thinking in the field. One of them is this um, slide that uh, Elizabeth Bradley and um, uh, Lauren Taylor and Harf Feinberg had in their um, a book that they wrote. This is the, a representation of it from the Commonwealth Fund and. Uh, I'll tell you that when I when I show this slide to healthcare leaders, they get really excited. Does anybody know why they get excited? Because the U.S. is not the highest cost, right? It's because we're right in the middle of the pack. They're like, you see, we're not the highest cost in the country, so we still need more money to do our work. The the reason that I love this slide is um, because what what Bradley um, uh, uh, and and others purport in this work, plus some work they've done at comparing state spending on social care in the blue box and healthcare in the white box, is that in pla- in, uh places states or countries that spend more on social care they have better health outcomes now most of that is correlation and we don't know what's the right size of the blue box I think most people's reaction though is oh we should probably be spending more on the blue box since a lot of people are going to bed hungry and there are probably ways that we should be addressing that more systematically not just waiting for them to show up in the emergency room because they chose to buy food and not medications or th- the food that they had available was salty and they're back in heart failure this is is going to become one of our big challenges unless we more deliberately think about where's the money coming from. I mentioned that in North Carolina, they're looking at Medicaid paying for your rent, but you can imagine a world in which you're a Medicaid beneficiary on a Medicaid managed care plan. And that managed care plan is paying your rent. But if you want to switch plans, then do you also have to switch your house or do you get to stay domiciled where you are? So the more we sort of put the money and say to healthcare, you solve all of this and not plus up that blue box. I think we have um, an interesting challenge We also haven't figured out how to solve the wrong pocket problem. If we lower cost or lower spend because grandma's not coming back to the hospital with heart failure because she's got better food and she's not lonely anymore, then who shares in those gains? Is it just that health care system or does the social care system that was also supporting her share in some of those gains? And there's some work, for example, uh, Senator Young um, out of Indiana passed, uh, led a bill called CIPRA, Social Impact Partnership, that is trying to look at some of that social impact partnership work and think about how to do the splits. But We're just beginning to figure out how to not just make healthcare richer when we solve this. Um, it's not that I hate healthcare. I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep talking like that. But that we make sure we're strengthening the right parts of the sector because I think there's two other kind of things happening. One of the things that's happening is that the innovation sector is recognizing that healthcare is increasingly interested in addressing social need, that healthcare has a lot of money, and that especially where healthcare is under total risk. So when they have responsibility for the total cost of someone's care, and they find out that grandma spent, you know, grandma's expensive not because her heart failure is not well managed, but because she's lonely or doesn't have a ride or doesn't have food, they're sometimes trying to solve it by aligning the community or working on advocacy. But you're seeing a lot of trend also towards them just saying, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to buy transportation services from a big rideshare company, one contract, digital report. At the end of the day, here's when we picked up grandma and where we dropped her off, instead of contracting with a bunch of cottage industry transportation companies in their local community, just the finding of those companies and then building the contracts because the companies also struggle to have the right lawyers. I was just at HIMSS, the Health Information Management System Society, and there were rideshare company ads everywhere talking about all the services they want to deliver to the healthcare system. They are a social services company now. This one, um, who has one in their house? Yeah. Who lets their kids play with it? Yeah, That's, that's the game, right? I think it's the next generation that this is going to be their best friend and, and um, their imaginary best friend. The opportunity for us to be in someone's home through a digital to- tool like this and hear what they're talking about, we are understanding that people might tell more things to this kind of technology than they tell to other people, is a chance to scrape that data and use it to, for good to help get resources to people. There's also a lot of ways it could not be used for good, but these kinds of companies that own these products, some of them have food distribution networks. Um, they have drones that can drop off supplies and drugs. Um, they they could create uh, solutions for social isolation. And by the way, all that stuff is in pilot testing. So the, the social care world is being very much disrupted by venture capital, digital technology, who see a business opportunity in addressing the social determinants of health. Not just that it's a nice thing to do, but they, they think that there's going to be a way for them to, to gain. I started to allude, allude to some of the unintended consequences, and I'm going to just begin to close with that because as excited as I'm... I am that communities may be healthier and have an opportunity at well-being, irrespective of where you live. Your zip code will no longer be that driver of your health, even if we have to start at the individual level and build ourselves up to um, aligning community and advocacy. I think there's also a lot of potential downsides. And I, as excited as I am that policymakers are engaged and looking for solutions and experimenting, I think we want to make sure we're channeling that interest and excitement with as much strong evidence as possible, uh, and also by raising some of the ethical and other issues that uh, are on the horizon. So I list uh, for you five of them. I bet we could come up with even more. But I talked about medicalizing the social determinants of health. I have a colleague, actually, at a large health system that I won't name, who ha- who says, um, why would we give medical Medicine responsibility for social determinants of health when they've done such a terrible job of addressing the health of the country. Maybe we should think about reinventing the social care sector, but it's much more than that. I think it's it's really about people. Pe- people don't just need a ride to go to the doctor. People need transportation to go to work or church or see their family or have a life, right? So we want to make sure we're fixing the social determinants, not with a, not as a help meet just to medicine. Now, we are uh, already starting to really disrupt the social care system and don't have even an inventory of how fragile it is. I know from a lot of personal experiences being health commissioner that it's fragility but I think that we're uh, th- those many of those local organizations have very special relationships and knowledge about their communities that I, I don't think can just be purely replaced be replaced by a digital company we will exacerbate inequity uh, if we're not careful because um, some of those some of the tools and tricks are designed for for a more techie world but even small things um, that that might get in the way like uh, if you did a social risk score and the person who's homeless with substance use disorder is spending the most of the health care dollar, but the mother who's homeless with four kids is not spending as much. And so we, based on spend, give the housing to to the guy and not to the mom. We could have maybe helped five people instead of one. These are nuances that we're not really at a place to think about. We're potentially going to harm those we most want to help. Uh, We ask the grandmother if she has uh, safe housing, and she tells us no, but she's responsible for grandkids. And then are we obligated to call in Child Protective Services because those kids are living in a house without running water or without electricity, and all we were trying to do was help her. And then finally, um, how can we uh, not add more complexity to an already complex system? Ask people once uh, if they're having challenges and reuse that data over and over again as an example, but also find ways to really leverage technology to... To make it feel more seamless for everyone involved. And so I'll just close by reiterating that I think the stakes are really high for a lot of reasons. And the country's at a place where they're caught up with many of us that health is more than healthcare, and we've got to do more than just clinical excellence if we're really going to drive health. This is not a single sector, this is not even a couple, this is really about. More of that public health 3.0 model of us working together outside of our silos, uh, leaving our egos aside and trying to find a way that we can collaborate, including between the public and private sector, uh, so that we can really have some of these um, some of the thinking from different disciplines or fields to really uh, solve this big thorny problem. Because we have big challenges, big dot challenges in life expectancy and spend, but also a lot of energy and interest. And I'll just leave you with, since I'm I'm talking a lot about medicine, I'll leave I'll leave the medical the medicine people in the room with William. Osler, uh, who is um, a giant in the field of medicine. The good physician treats the disease, the great physician treats the patient who has the disease, as, as Heather has shared. Uh, that's, that's absolutely fundamentally what they learn in social work. It's what we fundamentally learn in public health. I think medicine's just kind of forgotten about it. Um, but over time, it's not just the physician, but all of us that are going to have to treat uh, not just the person, but the community with the disease. And you guys are absolutely right on the cutting edge of doing all of it. So I thank you for your work. I want you to speed up.